Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. So much for being here. Um, I'm really, really so happy to be part of the creative community here in LA. I've only lived here for two years, but I feel feel really excited to to continue to be a part of this, and I feel really supported by all of you. So thank you so much. Um, so if you're not familiar with our book, I'll just give you a little synopsis. Um, when I was 23 years old, I was visiting home and staying with my parents, and I couldn't fall asleep one night, and I was just laying awake, just imagining my parents dying, as you do, um, just imagining their death in slow detail. And then, this was different from other ruminations on mortality, because I kind of forced myself to think beyond the moment of their death into the days and years after, and it occurred to me that I was going to live, continue living, and, and my mom, who I'm especially close to, wouldn't be there. And so I just thought it would, the best thing I could do is just ask my mom to write me a book of instructions that would tell me exactly what to do when she's gone so that I wouldn't have to live quite as much without her. So. The next morning I proposed the idea and she immediately laughed and liked it and she was like, yeah, I know exactly what I tell you to do first. You just pour yourself a stiff glass of whiskey and make some fajitas. <laughs> and uh, that was kind of the extent of the book for a few years. I would, I, would visit, I would visit home and I would bug her like, hey, mom, you're going to get hit by a bus one of these days and I'm not going to have that book and like, what is the deal? <laughs> and, Eventually, uh, she came out to New York to visit me, and I took advantage of her being corralled on vacation with me to, to start really writing it together. And through that process, we ended up uh, seeing the book as something that wouldn't necessarily just be for us, but would be for a wider audience. So um, it's been a long journey to get here, but uh, now the book exists. Um, and what I just wanted to do here today before we talk about the book is to just give you a little background um, on our relationship and um, kind of our... <laughs> I think this is my dog wanting to be close to me. Um, <laughs> do you want to sit on that stool or something? <laughs> um, didn't really anticipate that. <laughs> She was like crawling on the ground on her belly. Um, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> do you want to start the? Yeah. Yeah. So, I was raised uh, on a mountain outside a very small town in Northern California. Um, do we want to take the lights down? Is there a way we could do that? Just because there's going to be more images. Okay. Um, we had lots of animals. We had llamas, emus, pigs, dogs, cats, chickens, turkeys, a donkey, ducks, parrots, hamsters, rats, and so on. 
We didn't have a farm or produce anything. So later when I asked my mom why we had all these animals, she said she just wanted us to have an interesting childhood. <laughs> Which we did. Outside of her work as a newspaper reporter and editor, my mom wrote stories for children's magazines. This one appeared in Ladybug magazine. I don't think I realized at the time, but seeing my parents working at creative jobs was really having an impact on me. I made art constantly as a kid. I made comics, wrote stories, took photos, and actually all these uh, pictures of animals were taken by me when I was eight or so with a plastic camera. Later in my early 20s, I was digging through old boxes and I found my mom's journals from when she was a teenager. I was dying to illustrate them, um, and I did. So uh, tonight I wanted to share with you uh, this comic that I published, I think in like 2013, um, on a website called the Bygone Bureau, and it was our first published collaboration um, before this one, and um, so, I'll give you a little background. Um, the journal was written by my mom when she was 17. She was on a train trip through Europe and she was kind of like waxing poetic about a boyfriend that she had back home and, and her writing was like very funny and uh, felt like, felt like uh, similar to how her voice is today. Like she's the same writer. Um, so as I read this, I just want you to keep in mind that this is a 17-year-old writing this. It's called Train Trip Meandering and All for a Smooch. I need you to, I'm reading it off there, Mom. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> the qualities of a fine kiss are many and varied. A kiss's composition is a fine blend of the romance and delicacy of the soul of the kisser as well as the kissy. The kisser, allowably of either sex, must use his or her gathered skills in the cooperative effort of a kiss's creation. In its finest moment, a kiss should symbolize a harmonic unity in the meeting pair, heart and soul intertwined, and all feeling scope encompassed. The qualifications required for fine kissing are rigid, but what one is lacking in prowess can often be recovered through sheer effort. Physical standards are similar for both sexes. These include a minimum of grease on one's face and a physique between that of a string bean and a bulldozer. <laughs> it is helpful for the two parties to be similar in height or to have access to a ladder. <laughs> if either party wears glasses, these can be thrown off in a moment of romantic fervor, which can add or subtract from occasion depending on the style with which it is accomplished. It is also a pleasing addition to the event if one's teeth are limited in containment of the colorful foods of the last meal. <laughs> a 17-year-old writing this. Lips, as the instrument of intent, are well serving for the purpose of kissing, as this seems the sole reason for the existence of this sensitive group of vessels and tissues, it is a form of self-respect to keep them in good repair. Cracked, torn, and shredded lips should be cared for with salves, lotions, and limited usage. Fat lips should be severely exercised, unless hereditary, as the size may impoverish the kiss's effect. Thin lips, which are often hard, may be pummeled daily with a rubber eraser to create greater fullness. Often, in the case of thin lips, one must resort to intravenous feeding, but this is a last desperate measure. Occasionally, partners who are similar in most respects have mismatched lips. 
The consequences of this are merely that a kiss, kiss is accomplished with a maximum of three lips and a minimum of one. This is definitely a problem. <laughs> to correct the mismatch, the larger lips must be guided, although never with whalebone, as this may destruct the lips' contour to some degree. For the smaller lips, it's a helpful hint to stuff wads of cotton between the gum and the lips to increase stature. <laughs> These details must be planned sometime in the advance of the kiss so as not to ebb the flowing tide of a romantic evening. And oh. the end. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, it was really fun to illustrate my mom's writing from back then, because it felt like we were collaborating through time, like I was hanging out with her 17-year-old self, and that maybe if we met randomly, not mom and daughter, we actually would be friends. Um, and I know that that's kind of rare to feel that way about your mom. Um, it's not a very simple relationship. Um, and that's really why I want to set the record straight and um, let you know that our relationship is not 100% like that. Um, I've gotten a lot of people who have been saying like, oh, I wish like I had a relationship like you have with your mom. And uh, I just want to clarify that we have our issues. Um, <laughs> this is a photo of me on our flight to New York for the first part of our book tour. I was throwing a tantrum after we missed our connecting flight because my mom was taking a picture of her Einstein bagel to text to my brothers. <laughs> I was so frustrated that I didn't want to move and my mom was just like, it was not our destiny to be on that flight and it, that just made me so mad. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, the truth is, mother-daughter relationships are intense. You love each other intensely and annoy each other intensely, and that dynamic continues long after the kid is grown up. Um, and so to conclude this evening and to kind of balance the scales, I wanted to uh, share some tweets. I, I found this batch of tweets by searching my entire Twitter history for the phrase, my mom. And I found that I had tweeted over 50 times from when I was in college to present day. And uh, I think together they illustrate our dynamic pretty accurately. So this is just a selection of those tweets. I have a great chicken picture I want to send you, actually. My mom, under her breath. <laughs> my mom's habit of accidentally giving away my favorite clothes is starting to feel eerily personal. <laughs> Haha, <laughs> my mom told me she read my blog and she was proud because I'm like carrying the torch of her existential dread. Love my family. <laughs> my mom is posting a lot about our chickens on Facebook. My mom cackles joyfully every time she finds an error in the newspaper. She is in tears over someone's use of the word linger. What is my mom ever looking at on her iPhone? <laughs> One time I asked my mom if it would be wrong to date someone just for their comics collection, and she was like, no, I think that's fine. <laughs> my mom just blew her donut cash on jelly beans. Goddamn irresponsible. <laughs> I told my mom I wanted her to bake cookies while I draw comics in the kitchen, and now she is, and I am. <laughs> that was a great day. My mom is telling me not to swear on Twitter. Fuck. <laughs> 
Well, her plan worked. I still only buy cereals my mom would approve of. All my financial holdings should be used to buy my mom a tractor. I can't do my signature angsty melodramatic tweeting anymore because my mom discovered my accounts and keeps calling me like, are you okay? I don't like talking bad about people, but if I do have something bad to say, I say it to my mom. She has the best empathetic ugh. <laughs> Me and my mom are going to work the land. <laughs> she keeps saying, work the land. <laughs> Texting with my mom. I don't have the heart to tell her. And uh, I don't know if you can see, but I text her a poop emoji, and she says, is that a Hershey? And I said, um, yeah. And she said, new to chocomoticons. <laughs> So innocent and pure. <laughs> Things I inherited from my mom. But, eyes, habit of buying domain, domain names with grandiose plans for them and then forgetting about them. <laughs> my mom won't text me back. My mom keeps trying to get me to sign up for health insurance and I'm like, whatever mom, I'm 22, I'm invincible. Then I remember I'm 24. <laughs> Midway through a thought about how material things won't bring happiness, my mom stopped and said, actually, my vacuum makes me pretty happy. <laughs> my mom bought me markers at Rite Aid. 2016. <clears throat> Watching a movie with my mom, texting every two seconds, quietly laughing at stuff I refuse to tell her about. We're both having a great time. I'm, I'm going to Uber to my root canal, I guess. I wish my mom was here to drive me. My mom would like everyone to know that you can buy three forks for a dollar at the dollar store. Hashtag three forks for a dollar. <laughs> One reason everything will be okay is that my mom is coming tomorrow. And uh, that tweet was actually sent right before my mom came to New York, right before we started to write this book. So it's a full circle. Um, thank you. <laughs> just going to talk. I think the idea is, is that I'll ask some questions and then you all can ask some questions also. So we'll just have a conversation. Right. Um, I read this book and in one sitting, of course, I think that's kind of what you do. You open it. I just want to know all the things that your mom would tell you. Um, but it's funny, it, just even having this experience of seeing that your voice from when you were 17 and then illustrated by you. I kept thinking about that idea of what we pass down to each other because that's what this book is. It's you know a collection of something to pass down to your child and then to another child and to another person and another person. But it's clear that there are all these things that are kind of built into our beings that are passed down from our parents anyway. Like even just your voice as a 17 year old and thinking about how that had already affected Hallie, and like without even knowing it, like just you, who you are as a person. So then that makes me think about the book as a whole. And my first question was, you know, since finishing the book, has there been an ongoing list, or do you feel confident that this covers everything? And in that same realm, I think you know, would you suggest that other mothers create these books for their children that are so specific? Oh. I will just say that it does not cover everything. <laughs> um, 
from the moment we finished the book, we, we had to kind of lock down the text, and immediately there kept being, like, every time I would call my mom, there would be more stuff. They're like, oh, we, we need to cover that. Um, including, like, when I called her after everything was submitted, and I was like, I don't feel any better. I still feel scared that you're going to die. Um, and, yeah, there's not going to be, like, more and more uh, coverage of that paranoia, but, um, yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Oh, well, there's a million things we didn't cover. Yeah, yeah, because we we finished the basic the, the basic manuscript and then kept thinking of things to add or some life circumstance would come up and and um, and then we gave relatively short shrift to getting old and dying <laughs> because we were covering the earlier years. So there's just a, a lot of ground. And it, it's Do you a, think you'll add to the book though, like just for just for Hallie? Uh -huh. um, uh, no, not unless she asked me to, no. Because the fun part was the shared creation by batting it back and forth. Because it's hard if you're forced to say what your life philosophy is or what you want your kids to really know and hone it down. There's a lot of editing involved because in what you want to pass on to your kids if you're, in terms of getting it down to what, what's really you think is true. And when we got this done, we did think it was true to, to, to what I would say. And I have two sons, Hallie has two brothers, and it's equally for them. And um, I think, but the universal nature of it is that you, I think a lot of people, particularly when they get into, in, deep into old age, they often, if their parents didn't share something with them, they're looking back on that and wishing that they had passed something on. They wish they had, a, or if they have a letter, they treasure it so that they have that voice of the parent because my smart alecky voice is now officially preserved. Yeah. But, but there might be, you know, warmer voices that... <laughs> Yeah, and, and that's a treasure that later in life, when a lot of people you love have gone, that you can, can whether it's in writing or audio or video, it's a real treasure. I almost felt some sense of relief when you were reading that text from your 17-year-old self, because I was like, oh, but there are just these great pieces of you that are passed on into her without any you know, effort just by having a child, you're passing on these things through, you know, DNA or whatever it is, I don't, you know, however that works, because it's very clear that that artistry or that attention to detail or just that language is in you just knowing you as a friend. I'm like, oh, that, there, you're, you're in there already, <laughs> like, which so that kind of gave me this sense of a, of a relief. Um, Do you mean relief about dying? Like a relief that maybe if you didn't cover everything in your book for her, that there would still be all these things that were passed on that maybe you don't even have to think about. Uh, that just made me feel kind of unease or something. Oh, I can tell you that there's a lot of my mom in this book. My mom oh, cool. was a children's librarian who had six kids who had, she, she had a master's degree before that was very common and she raised us mostly alone with hardly any money. She was just an amazingly practical and very funny, kind of a smart alky person too. And she, um, you know, there's a lot of her in it that I, in fact, some of the passages I just thought about her, and then the passage was rude. So that's it. It's it's true. It's just very multi generational. I think. I love that. I wanted to know that about your mom being present in this process. Very so. present. That's really special. Yeah. Um, should we? Add, does someone else want to ask a question? So we've kind of moved back and forth. So it's not just us talking up here. Does anyone have one? Hallie, can you talk about what may have led to you staying? Uh, staying up late that night and sort of thinking about your parents passing? Like, was there some acute thing that happened or just kind of yeah. context? Um, so Keith was asking if there's something that led to 
the moment of the genesis of the idea. And uh, I don't think there was anything specific beyond that I, I don't know if I was living at home or I was about to be in this stage between cities where I was moving back in with my parents. And I think probably a lot of us have been there in our generation. Um, so you kind of get a different glimpse of your parents as they're growing older and um, they're also their own people and very kind of vulnerable. And um, it may have been that kind of feeling of like, oh, these people are really, really important to my life and also like older. <laughs> um, and then I think I just have a tendency to like, I don't know, become anxious about just anything that could like fuck up my life um, or try to like I like to try to preempt things so with the idea I was trying to think like I know like oh if I know because maybe a lot of times when we think about death it's almost in a way like sometimes it can be bad but sometimes it's a kind of a soothing behavior because we're thinking, we're spending time there and becoming used to the feeling of mortality being real. And I think that my spending time there last night was like, how long can I stay in this cold water? <clears throat> and then I actually came out of the experience with the idea that like, this is actually something that is not preventable, like everyone is gonna die, but it's something that I, if I know that it's gonna happen to me, I can make it less painful by taking this action so yeah that's that that actually leads perfectly into my next question which is for both of you which is have either of you ever had any premonitions about your death or do you have a desired way you'd like to die or a thought of you know this would be the way i'd like to go out and that kind of equally goes with how afraid are are you to die I thought about that a lot when I was reading this book. I was like, I kind of felt a little bit of your like fear of losing her, but the fear of death wasn't a thing that I that sat with me a lot as I was reading it, which was really nice. I just got to think about these, you know, insights and this wisdom, but there wasn't fear guiding it. But then I wondered, you know, in, in your personal realm, like how afraid do you feel? And also do you have this desired like outcome of how you would like to see your life end? Well, that's an interesting For me, n no, no premonition. I, I have this theory that whatever you worry about getting, you're going to get knocked off by something that you just didn't see coming. That's my theory. So, <laughs> that's so why it's great to worry about everything. <laughs> right, you cover your base in that way. Yeah, and, and I actually, I got hit in uh, 2013, I got hit by a drunk driver who was so drunk she was like a 0.36. I think that's just short of when you're dying. In the inner inner mugshot, she looked really happy. Like she, she, had, she had multiple things in her system. And, and I and it, it's funny because Hallie, I hadn't agreed to. I hadn't sat down to do anything about the book, and I didn't get badly hurt. But my car was totaled, and it was just right on the cusp of possibly getting, I, I mean, I easily could have been killed. I was just in a tank of a car. And I got hit out of the blue at 50 miles an hour, and she was, um, um, that that caused me to think, oh, I, I guess it's true. People, you know, people suddenly die and they maybe, what do you want to do before you, before you, you go? Somehow that's tied in because I didn't see it coming. It was actually, I never saw her coming. 
and I suddenly go, well, they, isn't that a wake-up call? And that actually helped me agree to to really put more energy into the lead. And, and I actually feel better having, this isn't answering your question, but having written down my thoughts, I feel like I could die tomorrow and I've, and I've left something that is more important to me than, you know, whatever my will is going to contain or, you know, that that's kind of valuable to, to me and I hope to the kids. Yeah, I feel like I always operate from the place of you could die tomorrow, so you might as well just like take in your life for this second and be like, wow, I've lived an amazing life. Even if you haven't done everything that you wanted to do even, it's just yeah. like a good way to kind of step into the day. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm sure everyone in this room has at least had some experience where someone in your life or someone you know has passed away really suddenly when that mm -hmm. could have just been you. You know, it, it, there's nothing different between you and that person, so... Yes. What about you, Hallie? Any premonitions? Well, any fears. <laughs> just want going back to my mom. Your dream death is described in the book because it is. I, yeah. yeah. She wants to die in a cabin by a lake. Yes. <laughs> and, and it's a pink cabin in the book. Yeah, and and, and Hallie had a canoe in the first version because I like I kayak. I like to kayak, and you know, even though I'd be perhaps in the cabin, not or I could be in the kayak. But that was so. That's my that's my dream sequence. Yeah. And, and then she had to take the kayak out because it didn't fit with some of the text. So I lost my kayak. Dreamed up. Because you'll be too old. You just won't even. You'll just want to only be inside. Inside in a yeah. nice recliner by the like, fireplace. Yeah. yeah. Cut Cats. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Cats and dogs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't really have a dream death yet. I I think I would like to have, and whether it's just in the form of like writing a book or writing letters or something, I I know that in my ideal scenario I'd be able to like say something to the people that I love, um, and as long as like that was taken care of, I feel like I'd feel alright. Yeah. Okay, does anyone else want to ask a question now? Out there in the seat? Uh, the page where you talk about the first birthday afterwards and how it kind of breaks the whole mold and it's like, honestly, this is going to be tough for me, felt like a very profound, pivotal moment in the book. Was there anything that from either of you exchanging uh, was like surprising? hearing from the other person or like informed the direction of the book in a way that you didn't think it would? I I broke into tears upon whatever we were doing the day that we wrote that, and, and I and I was sitting. I remember writing and and uh, and just looking down, and I just broke into tears because it had never occurred to me because I'm not that fast a thinker. Apparently, even though we're writing a book about my dying, it just I just didn't take it that seriously. And then when I suddenly realized, wait a minute, I'm going to miss out on all the rest of life that happens if, if the grandkids aren't born by then, or if you know Hallie's existence that I don't get to appreciate as she ages. You know, you assume you have that and I was so struck by it I was oh I, I cried for five minutes and then I and then I um, was able to go um yeah well you ought, I, I, I had a quip of you know well you ought to be feeling sorry for me on this day but of course to anybody who's lost somebody those first anniversaries are very difficult on whether it's loss of relationship or the death of a person those coming around and those those firsts are hard. So that was definitely my awareness, but it wasn't personalized until I wrote it. And then it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Yeah, I think uh, writing this like 
multi-generational book has been interesting because my, where I was operating from was like imagining all of these things that I were kind of a what if scenario, like I haven't lost a parent. This is all for me an imaginary exercise and for my mom, she has lost her mom and I think that the like generational kind of flow of these are things that happen to, to everyone. So, so for you to be able to identify what that moment would even mean for me and for you, I feel like was, was really emotional. Because um, I didn't know really that the first birthday would be hard, but I don't know, my mom has experience with that. And I think that was the only, the only page that when we wrote it, we both were <laughs> really like kind of shaken up and, but it was good. <laughs> shaken up in a good way. Yeah, I cried at that part a lot. <laughs> that was the part where I got lost and had to close the book for a second and then open it back up. Um, I particularly like the sections about love uh, and the parts about our way of looking at, you know, death in modern society, that, like, the way we approach looking at death. And that got me thinking about, like, you know, like green burials and like wakes and the, the different like traditions of those things and the details of how we engage with those traditions. Um, I just like that you put that in there. There were these things that were like, you know, we're, we don't need to be so removed from this experience like of actually when the person dies. And I just wondered if there was anything else you wanted to talk about with that or like those things felt, um, like you're kind of pushing some boundaries almost of like looking into that tradition of when someone dies and like what you do with them and how you treat their body and things like that. So. Well, I think, you know, how do we used to treat bodies? You, you brought them in from the farm field where they get killed by the tractor and you put them on the table and, and, you, and you tended the body. I mean, really, that's how it used to be. This wasn't this, my mom died at 85 and some car arrived and took her body out and I never saw her again. It just was so distant and, and antiseptic. I just thought it was just a, and, and part of what, I'm from, my parents were older when they had me, and, and, and my dad was a World War II navigator, so my, I had old parents, and, and now I'm, I'm 50, 59 years old. And um, so in that generation, and I also had a magazine where I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of old people and, and heard about their loss and their experiences, and, and I think that... Um, for in true of my family and many of the people I've interviewed, that death was not discussed. You lost somebody, you buried them, and then you just didn't speak of it. You had uh, suicides, deaths by accident, murders. You just didn't talk. It wasn't part of what you. And, and, and my feeling is, what I want in in my family with my kids is that we go, hey, guess what? I'm going to die. You're going to die. Let's talk about it, so that we can in a way connect with the joy of not dying today and celebrate it and, and have this real awareness because it was something to be avoided at all costs. In conversation, and in my family, I, I was always the one who, couldn't you shut her up because she, she wants to talk about all this stuff and that's how I think it should be and that's, that's in a way it's, I feel a responsibility as a, I guess I'm a boomer, to, to encourage that conversation in my family, and I'm, I hope that that's something that happens from the book. 
Yeah, I think that's such a special part of the book. I mean, I, reading it, of course, I'm thinking about my own parents and, you know, their death. And I just kept thinking about how that's, we, in, in this generation, and this shows, by the way, you've collaborated to make this book, like, our generation has these other tools that our parents didn't really use or even have, maybe, to communicate about things. And so, like, by pushing the boundary of talking about death in a different way and bringing it to the table and having your insight of being like, I don't want it to be like that in my family, then you're offering this tool for all of us to get to do that with our families. So that, that was one of the most inspiring things, I think, for me, for the book. Is there anything else you want to Well, I think there's a tremendous amount of resistance uh, to, to, to that, because people have written us and said, you know, I asked my parent to share something with me after reading the book, and one woman said, um, uh, I asked my dad for his best advice, and he just said, uh, uh, their religious family, and uh, he just said, ah, just read the Bible, it's all in there. <laughs> what, a, what a moment that that person could have shared with their child. And and I just think there's an opportunity, and you're not going to look back later and say, you know, maybe you want the possessions, but you're not going to look back later when in your 90s and say, I'm so thrilled I got that Thing, that money that I spent, you're gonna look back and say, what what memory did I carry of my 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 family that brought me into this, and what's the what's the heritage that they shared with me that and what was important to them? So I think that's something that we're it's very important to me, and and we we Hallie and I come up with some questions that because we had a thought that stemming from the book might be a, a workshop idea where adults that may not have great relationships with their parents in in order to break through some of the resistance to some of the questions and sharing of information. Normal, or just normal relationships. I right. Think that it's like so sometimes it's, it's, it's common. It's hard to, uh, hey, hey, hey dad, you want to talk about your death? Let's talk about your death today. Like, what's, what's their first thought going to be? And so we've come up with some questions that are just kind of in a form of a bookmark you can carry with a book. And it's meant to start a conversation and which sometimes is, um, you, there may be great resistance to, or in other times it may be a parent welcomes the opportunity to be able to, to be, to, sh to show interest. You know, Hallie I think is unusual at this age to want to know this. I think later in life is when I've seen people really wish that they had the pass down from their parent. Um, I just want to say I've been like, I, I don't think that there's like any shame at all or anything about having difficulty with this subject, especially with your parents. Like, it's really hard sometimes to like get through dinner with your family and sometimes it just doesn't feel like it's worth it. Um, and like I've heard, I remember hearing an interview with David Sedaris, who's like, he's so funny and dark. I, I think I imagined that he had no trouble talking about things like that with his family, but he told this whole story about how his mom passed away and they never broached the subject because he didn't want to make her uncomfortable and she didn't want to burden him maybe or she was, you know, afraid to talk about it. And that really surprised me and made me realize just how, no, you know, almost no one is exempt from how difficult this subject is, but I think he wished that he had spoken to her about it, been able to some way, and I think that one of the big inspirations for writing this book was trying to make some kind of icebreaker for other people to say, like, we did this, and it was really, really beneficial, and maybe by reading 
this like vivid <laughs> experience of our conversation. Like it's our wish that you would have this conversation with your kids or your family and um, and your parents, and that like that's kind of what what its purpose is is like to be shared. Um, so hopefully, beyond reading it yourself, you can even if you just give it to your parent and maybe say how did what did you think of that book and maybe some conversation can start from there and I think that there might be like 30 seconds of discomfort and then after that you might have an incredible conversation that you otherwise may not have had. Yeah, uh, I'm looking at these questions and they're so good so I think everybody should give this to your parents because I, I just realized as looking at I'm looking at them right now and I realized oh I remember I did ask my parents like three years ago to write to me and tell me like just something about our past or something that I would have written down like their memories from when I was born or and it, you know whatever and it was really hard for them my dad never did it um, and my mom wrote this beautiful letter that was kind of all about like my birth which was nice because I didn't know any of those things. So I read it and I was really moved by it. But as I read your book, I thought, oh, how would I get my mom to make something like this? But this is how. Like, I'm just going to send her this and she's going to answer these questions and then I will have my own book. What a cool tradition to start to get parents to like make books for their kids and then you know what to do. And it's really not um, that grandiose of an idea to just have a great like list of questions that you get to you know, work on over time. Um, does anyone else have anything they want to ask? Out there in the crowd. Mm -hmm. I was curious if you guys have any beliefs or notions about what happens after you die. Oh. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great mystery that causes us to uh, think hard when we're here. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Same answer. <laughs> uh, yeah. Jacqueline, I have one, one other thing that um, people are daunted by writing a lot of older people. They just go, oh, I can't possibly write if they got a list of questions like that. Um, and, and when my mom was, my mom, um, I interviewed her when she was about a year from the time that she died. And she was frail enough, and this is a trick for really old people, if you want to get them to talk. And she was able to use a computer, so I would send her one question a week, because she really couldn't do that much. And then she could write it in handwriting and stash it in a drawer, whatever it took. It's just the fact that she addressed it, and that, that worked. So it's nice to have the conversation so you can read the person's body cues and body language, but if you can't do that, it's possible to present it in a in a bite-sized way that isn't so scary. So that's just another idea. Or with like a audio recorder or something yeah. like that. Um, one of my friends in New York when he came to our reading said that he'd given his dad for Christmas a journal that had, like it sounded like a beautiful idea, like a journal with questions on each page, like tell me this story in that one, and he just never did it because I think people it's don't, it's, it's hard to dig dig deep, so even if it's just an audio recording on your iPhone or something, you know, that can be 
easier. That's a good point. I feel like when I asked my parents to do it, it was like a huge tall order. I was trying to do this timeline of my life, which I thought was a really good idea. I was like, I'm going to need them to fill in the gaps. And I was like, can you guys go year by year of my life and just t anything that comes up, whatever you think of. And my dad was like, your baby both. I don't really have time to do that. <laughs> so he didn't, but then, you know, that's, that's a good, that's a good addition to it. That maybe something small and simple or even then all the questions but um, so uh, does anyone have anything else before we um, uh, you two just seem so in sync and like literally on the same page about what's happening between you two and your relationships I was just wondering as someone who has like a lot of differences from my mom there were any like major differences you had to reconcile like spiritual beliefs or maybe political or maybe just like eating dietary restrictions well, one thing that I think we both noticed once we started writing the book, and this isn't like a belief thing, it's just a way that we think, like, I, I've been working as an illustrator and cartoonist for like eight years, um, and I kind of think in graphic stories and the way that I write is really melded with image and my mom is a journalist and words are everything and so when we started when we were collaborating um, we clashed a lot um, and it wasn't just about that it was like I'm really like fast like I just want to like get everything down and like get our project like on its way and my mom really wants to like ruminate and yeah and sit with things and and like look at all the options um, and so, I mean, I tell people, like, when we were writing the book, like, I was a brat. <laughs> and I, like, apologized to my mom later. I was like, I really am so sorry that, like, I couldn't stop just being, like, a bratty child. Like, mom, let's just write faster or something. <laughs> and she was like, no, it's okay. I had a mom once. Like, she was understanding. But, yeah, I mean, I'm not... I'm not proud of that. <laughs> well, also part of it is I didn't understand, honestly, it was for quite a while that it was going to be a graphic um, memoir, I guess is what you call it. I didn't get that. I thought it'd be a lot, a lot of words with a few little illustrations. And, 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 and so Allie kept in, you know, we'd write something and then we'd sit together to edit it and she'd go, ah, I don't need this and this and this and this. That's all crap. One sentence was left. So I thought, Golly, leave me some words and I just didn't understand where she was going and then at some point when I, she started sketching and I continued to work on the writing she um, it appeared that it was going to be a, a graphic memoir and un unbeknownst to me a lot of space devoted to illustration and, and, and I, was, I, I, I was not that familiar with graphic novels for example although I knew they existed and to see um, to see the power of it now and when I got what we were doing, to see the impact of the illustrations, it just says so much. I, I was stunned by it, but that was a learning experience. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, you had a question too? Yeah, um, I had a question for uh, Susie, actually. Um, you said that death was overall never really discussed or dealt with in your family. Um, as a child with older parents, was it something you privately worried about more? And from that vantage point, are there things in this book you think would have helped you from that point if you have been reading it when you were younger and just, you know, maybe worrying about things earlier than other people may have to? 
Um, I know that your book is like universal for anyone who experienced it, which is everybody. So the core question is about, did I fret about this with my parents? Because you said you're a child of older parents. Right. So, and does this book have you? <laughs> I can't I can't even answer it. I had a very dysfunctional home, so dysfunctional that it appeared that somebody could die at any time. And I don't think I worried about it. I just lived in kind of a scary home. So I can't I can't say I didn't have the kind of relationship that we have. And in a way, part of the reason I think we have a good relationship is my, my sole goal as a parent was to have a, a nice home with llamas that nobody was scared in. And and honestly that's you know, sometimes out of bad stuff good things come. So I can't relate to it that way. But I do think that it um, it has actually helped me with other circumstances that have happened in loss in my life, oddly, that have nothing to do. And, and, I've, and I've looked to it because it's, if, you, if you really clarify what your beliefs are, I didn't do that until now in terms of what I really wanted to tell my kids. And somehow that's helpful to me. I can't even say why, but it, but it is. So I look back on it and I seem to take something different from each each time I look at it. Yeah, that's interesting. I thought I thought a lot about like your purpose. Um, I think about that all the time, all of us. Like, what is our purpose? How do we connect to our purpose? And we've talked about making work with a lot of purpose. And I kept thinking about your purpose as a mother and being so devoted to you know being a mother and having this family and that being like a sole purpose in life for you. Then then transforming through your life to like lead to all this other purpose now like through this work and like you just said affecting all these other parts of your life and showing yes yeah I think that's fascinating um there was one other question out there that I saw but I don't know who it was was it you yeah I'm a healthcare professional I just was curious if you have written an advanced directive actually for healthcare yes mm -hmm. I'm a planner. <laughs> and I think everybody should. I had a senior magazine where we wrote all those issues and the vast majority of people we talked with had not weren't even aware that, you know, what that that, that planning and I, I'm a big believer in, you know, get rid of a lot of the crap in your life, make things easier for your kids so that when you are gone you're leaving clear instructions plus not a not a big mess of uh, you know, make things easier for your kids. I think that's a big gift that you can give them. And have you encouraged your children to, to have that advanced work at their age? No. Yeah, because we're not going to die for like a really long time. <laughs> I can't go down that road. I literally am like, what is that? I have no idea what that is. <laughs> Which is kind of terrifying because I can tell it's important. <laughs> I think that's when you say, like, if I'm a vegetable, like, turn me off or keep me going or whatever. Um, I wrote that down. Okay, cool. Yeah, everyone should do that. <laughs> Me included. <laughs> I was just going to say, if you, if you don't have one written out for you, the state will come in and do it as a big mess for my grandma. So, right away, make sure it doesn't happen. Uh, cool. yeah. You have one last question over there before we wrap up? What if the reverse happens and the daughter dies first? Oh, let's just say I, I would not be, be, um, be equipped for that. In, in, in uh, you would use the book. <laughs> right? You know, I've, I've interviewed a lot of people because of people in their 90s and some people would say, I, I, you know, you ask about their family experience and, and, you know, well, I lost four of my six kids. I mean, go down that. That's just the hardest 
I, I can't fathom it. I can't think about it. I say I'm a planner. I'm not in terms of <laughs> that. I, I, I think that um, that would be one, you know, to me, the, the most difficult loss to, uh, of a child. And that's what I've seen from people I've talked with. That does bring up this question of like creating these works that help us process things, like these mm -hmm. self-help books that aren't there for us if we have a problem. And I'm sure that there is a book out there that's about dealing with losing a child. Um, but in, in, even in my work writing poems, that's like when someone loses a child and asks me to write about that grief, you know, that's something that you can only kind of imagine. And it's similar to just writing a book like this and trying to actually imagine what that would be like. So it's, it is an interesting thing that we like put ourselves in these positions where there is something we can like devote ourselves to as a mother to prepare your child, but then to prepare yourself for the reverse would be a whole other... Right. And I, there, I don't think there's any preparing, but I do think that the core of what, what I like that um, in taking from this book, I think, can I see the card? Yeah, if you could send me one message after you die, what would it be? And to me, the message that that I, and I'm saying this is what we tried to, what I tried to convey the central thing would be, you will grieve the loss, but know that the person who's dead doesn't want you to spend the next X number of years of your life in a grief state where you can't function. What do they want? They want to look down and have you be happy and healthy and moving forward in the pursuit of your purpose of life. And if I had to answer the the lost child question, then I would say, well, Hallie, if I imagine it, does not want to see me stricken and on the floor and unable to function for 25 years or whatever I've got. So I, I would go back to that as if you imagine how your person hopes that you, the quality of life that you have in your remaining years, they want joy. They, they, that's what they want for you, right? They don't want anything short of that, so. That is what I want for you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I think that all kind of wraps up to like this nice testament of what this book is, which is this kind of question about what we can do to prepare ourselves for loss of all types, like even you saying it's affected you with other types of loss in your life and how, you know, you can, you can go through your days and not think about death um, and not think about loss and then you can go through the next day and have some weird moment where you wake up at night and you're afraid and you imagine your parents dying. But the truth is, is the only way you're going to prepare yourself for it at all is to actually just accept that it's going to happen <laughs> and that it's completely unknown. And then the rest of it can be this sort of imaginative, almost like curious and somewhat playful experience. That's what I like about the book the most is that there is this tone of levity to it, this thing that's so heavy and weighs on us all the time and that is like a source of such sadness can actually also just be you know, a source of levity because we know it's coming. <laughs> so, and I do think it helps you appreciate the time you have here. It's finite. It's and, and even in writing it, I go, gee, I, I I keep forgetting that it's just you know, it's finite. That there's a, you know, there is a um, short, relatively short amount of time, and and I think that even people's passing helps you understand that and appreciate the fact that we should make the best use of our time. Well, thank you both for getting us to all think about that. <laughs> and um, just one final note about the cards that you passed out. Um, we're just, uh, they're contain about like uh, 10, eight questions um, that you can answer for your kids. If you have kids, ask your parents um, or just, you know, talk about with friends. I think that 
they're a, a good starting place, um, and so I hope that's helpful for you. Right. Thank, <laughs> thanks, you. everybody. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.